You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 270. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! Right! Ooh, are, are you guys in, in mourning state yet? Well, Prince Philip died, so what else can we do to mourn him? It wasn't that much unexpected, was it? I mean, yeah. 99 years of age, that's quite high. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of psychics that have predicted this for a number of years, and finally they got it right. Finally, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At least there's that, yeah. And they will claim it as a win, of course. But it's been it's been more than a week as uh, this episode comes out. It's been it'll will have been more than a week ago. Yeah. Uh, and there's been quite a hullabaloo about it, or whatever they say over there in Britain. And the, the BBC went nuts about it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> they cancelled everything, and they went on <laughs> to show hours after hours of of tributes to him. Wow. <laughs> and a lot of people complained and <laughs> thought that was rather inappropriate. <laughs> and um, the Sun, the paper, the Sun, claimed that there were over a hundred thousand complaints. But the Sun is the sun so we can't trust them and the bbc hasn't confirmed as far as i know i read it somewhere that they had to launch a new website just to collect all the complaints yes that's <laughs> yes they they published a form online so that they wouldn't have to answer the phone because it wouldn't have worked wow out. okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, that that's being prepared you know you you know what to expect when you already have planned to have this form online because i don't think they just did it on the fly <laughs> but but he was an interesting figure wasn't he i mean he, he, a bit of a prick actually to be honest lots of uh, racist remarks came from him over the years yeah he was uh, you know asking australian aborigines if they still uh, threw spears at each other and uh, joking about cannibals in papua new guinea um, Maybe you shouldn't do that. Pretty awful. Pretty awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but but for, for some reason, I don't know if uh, in your countries it was the same, but on Hungarian Facebook, everyone went completely nuts about how an awesome figure he was and, and what, a, what a lovely character and and how great their love towards each other with the Queen was and, and that he was such a special person. And uh, this is completely the opposite of how I perceived him <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> while he was alive. So yeah. I, I think it's, well, I agree with you, but, but I, I think in Sweden it wasn't, I mean, he was, of course, on the big news sites, just, oh, Prince Philip has died, but nobody made a big fuss of it. Mm. We have our own royals to mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. True. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Germany, um, I don't know, like... It, you don't have your royals. At least no. in my bubble, like, people were more nasty, actually, and others called them out for it and were like, hey... Well, yeah, he wasn't the greatest person, but still, it's like somebody died, somebody lost their loved ones, so maybe let's not joke too much about it. Yeah, that's fair. So I can I can understand both sides, and yeah, yeah I think it was pretty diverse, diverse reactions in Germany. But you you did actually have, once upon a time in Germany, a, a, a royal of the same family. <laughs> yeah, Willen. but they were still called Battenberg then. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> 
Wittenberg, yeah. Mountbatten, they had to change yeah. it to when, when he yeah. came over to England. But it was, it was strange. And it was a strange life that he had, being so privileged from birth, part of centuries of inbreeding, a family of inbreeding. Uh, the same family being monarchs of, of Germany, of, of Russia, Scandinavia, or the individual countries of Scandinavia, I should say, Greece and, and whatnot. And actually it was the same family as his wife, <laughs> because they were both great-great-grandchildren of Queen Victoria. For, for which he could him consider himself very lucky, because uh, he didn't get... Hemophilia. Uh, Hemophilia. Yeah. yeah, right. That, that was a, the problem of a lot of the male descendants of, exactly. of Queen Victoria had that. That's right. And uh, so that, that that comes with inbreeding. You, <laughs> you, you need fresh blood once in a while. And, and nowadays, I think even the royals don't do that. He, he was one of the last figures that actually married, not a cousin, but, but a, a, a relative like they did for, for hundreds of years. And it wasn't a, uh, the idea to some extent was to keep Europe within the family, sort of. So the, the, the idea was you could solve the, the conflicts over the dinner table instead of going to war with each other. That was a nice theory, but we know <laughs> that it didn't always work out that way. Uh, there was a lot of wars between cousins and brothers and what whatnot. So um, monarchy is a strange thing. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad it's not as important today as it used to be. And I wish it would go away altogether. It must be the worst way of applying to a job, making sure that you have the right parents. And even even if your parents were good monarchs, Who's to say that you will be a good one? Yeah, uh, We do frown a lot upon nepotism if we think about Donald Trump and appointing his uh, son-in-law to things and engaging the whole family. Is that really the best person in the land you could find mm -hmm. to do that job? Or is it just because he happened to be your uh, son-in-law? Yeah, but you just proved the point that um, it doesn't have to be a monarchy to, for that to happen. No, no, but when it's a monarchy, it's sort of built into the system. Yeah, all right. Okay. When it comes to Donald Trump, it's more of an exception and it can be criticized on very good yeah. grounds. And I'm happy to say that none of the three hosts of this episode or this show is related, <laughs> as far as we know. We're probably all related very, very far back. <laughs> I, I, do, I do think we are. <laughs> Otherwise... <laughs> One of us would be... Uh, not human. <laughs> not not a human person. Well, actually, one of us is a lizard person. Yes. So <laughs> we're not already... Uh, we, we are all lizard persons on this <laughs> podcast. Well, we do have our heritage. Mammals are descendant of... Uh, oh, not, not necessarily lizards, but early reptilians. So, reptilians, uh, yes. Yeah. Lizards, maybe not. <laughs> lizards, probably not. But I'm pretty sure that uh, it's interchangeable that the way they call them is oh, sometimes lizard people, sometimes the reptilians. I don't know. True. That they are being referred yeah. to as. So I, I don't know. No. Well, we don't have to be that picky. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Talking about nitpicking. <laughs> I'm afraid we went down to a rabbit hole about something that is uh, none of either of us's 
field of expertise, and that is linguistics. <laughs> well, I studied linguistics. Uh, I would oh, like to add that very good. <laughs> as an English teacher. Very good. You did. And uh, yeah, I stand corrected. So it doesn't make me an expert, though. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. But uh, certainly Pontus and myself cannot consider ourselves not nearly experts. But we did touch on several occasions on how silent E is completely useless in the English language. And uh, we got... Some- how we got pushback <laughs> we got, got pushback from i think we can refer to him as, as, a, as a friend um uh, bob got back to bob, bob yes. back to us and of course bob, that, we know now that bob is spelled b-o-b-e right no because <laughs> that would be Bo. sorry yes <laughs> Okay, fine. I, I'm wrong again. He's I'm wrong again. And he's he's Bob, not okay, Bo. Right. So we just proved that <laughs> that it does make a difference. So <laughs> yeah, and uh, he he made a, a a couple of very good points and uh, sent us a couple of links. I wouldn't claim I understand completely whatever I read on those links, but there are two things. First of all, there are loan words from from French this is this is one of the arguments that's that's the point you made yes that uh it's uh how you phrase it was a, a little bit different that uh, you called it up I don't remember exactly but somehow good uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't right probably. stupid things that was borrowed <laughs> from the from the French yeah. well we just have to acknowledge that languages do change and uh there have been amazing changes in the English language as well throughout the ages. Uh, One of those is uh, what is being referred to as the Great Vowel Shift, which led from Old English to Early Modern English. Which which I did mention, Uh, yes, to my credit. I was aware of that. Yes, yes, yes. But during and after the Great Vowel Shift, there were words where the silent E was reintroduced after having disappeared from the spelling of, of certain words. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely amazing. I mean, that's quite a thing to go through for a language. So all I want to say is that we have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to <laughs> linguistics. I am fascinated by it, <laughs> but uh, I would like to ask for a truce with everyone whom we, we offended with our right. harsh criticism. Just just to counter that, I would just point out that in Sweden around the 1900, we uh, did have a spelling reform and we got rid of a lot of silent letters. So it is possible, England. Come on, do it. No, but I think <laughs> we should just leave languages alone. Yes, and okay. Let Let's them develop that. in Let's their own way. <laughs> and uh, English is developing quite a lot. I mean, it's the language that's spoken by the greatest number of people on earth i'm i'm pretty sure about that not as not necessarily as a first language right but definitely yes there's a common language that as a we lingua can franca use. a lingua franca yeah, yeah. I, I don't like using that word <laughs> why don't you like franconians <laughs> i did not say that okay so yeah we are still amazed by everything that we see and uh at least for me it's just a painful experience going through learning languages and not being able to master them <laughs> but um yeah talking about languages we do struggle occasionally with pronunciation right yeah exactly and we got an email from um max or max you can also send in how to pronounce your name <laughs> and he sent us the uh, pronunciation of the two students that i talked about last week and i'll try my best now <laughs> so he said they're pronounced Jana Oberska and Marianna Gaida. Yeah. That's what I heard and tried. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So I still want to encourage all our listeners to do the same thing. 
So whenever we come up with a language, uh, a name that we butcher or we just don't get quite right, since we do want to, do let us know. So get in touch, and uh, we will try to make it right. Yeah, and if you send us our, our, your sound files, uh, tell us if you agree for us to to play them on on the episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we do have a, a show which is not full of linguistic questions and uh, problems, um, but. Um, many other skepticism-related issues. And the first thing, as usual, is when we find out what happened this week in skepticism. Yeah, and this week in skepticism, I want to talk about a very interesting, maybe fascinating person. Okay. <laughs> and that is Erich Anton Paul von Däniken. Are you sure about the pronunciation of his name? That's German. Like he's, he's <laughs> I <Swiss>. know. <laughs> okay. I'm just pulling a leg. <laughs> I was just like, okay. <laughs> Erich Anton. Erich <laughs> Anton. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was born on the 14th of April, 1935. And uh, he's a Swiss author of books claiming extraterrestrial influences on early human culture. I think most of us have probably heard of him. Yeah. Ancient aliens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The alien of the gaps. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The most popular book that he wrote was probably the 1968 Chariot of the Gods, Unsolved Mysteries of the Past, or in the original German, Erinnerungen an die Zukunft, Ungelöste Rätsel der Vergangenheit. Which is funny because this translates to Memories of the Future and then Unsolved Mysteries of the Past. So it's a bit of a different title. Mm-hmm. So in his theory, he says that technologies and religions of many ancient um, civilizations were received from ancient astronauts who were then seen as gods, which is, well, it's an interesting theory. But all of these theories were debunked several times. <laughs> Erich van Däniken grew up as a Roman Catholic um, he also was a manager in a hotel in Davos and his book draft was rejected several times until it was reworked by Utz Utermann, who also had been a Nazi bestselling author. Interesting, right? <laughs> mm, yeah. Erich van Däniken was also involved in a jewelry deal where he got convicted for fraud and embezzlement. Oh, okay. <laughs> he had a side job as well then. Yes. <laughs> and in the 1970s, a huge hype around his theories um, started. To which point he also got convicted again because of embezzlement and fraud and forgery of papers with his hotel. So he wrote his second book, Gods from Outer Space, in prison. (laughs) (laughs) People think that some of these theories came from the 1966 book Intelligent Life in the Universe by Carl Sagan and I.S. Shlovsky. And his books are still very popular. They were translated into 32 languages and sold more than 63 million copies. And now I would like just to read out a quote by Carl Sagan, what he has to say about the work of Erich van Däniken. And that is, quote, That writing as careless as von Däniken's, whose principal thesis is that our ancestors were dummies, should be so popular is a sober commentary on the credulousness and despair of our times. I also hope for the continuing popularity of books like Chariots of the Gods in high school and college logic courses as object lessons in sloppy thinking. I know of no recent books so riddled with logical and factual errors as the works of Van Däniken. <laughs> that was in the foreword of The Space Gods Revealed. 
by Carl mm-hmm. Sagan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, that's interesting. You know, I, I grew up very fascinated by those ideas. I don't know if I ever bought it, but I I fantasized about it. I thought it was very, very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what year did you say the, the Chariots of the Gods came out? Uh, 68. In German? Yeah. The, the original? I think so. That is very fascinating to me because... I always thought that one of my heroes when I was growing up was uh, Tintin. And uh, there was a, uh, a Tintin book called Flight 414 to Sydney. That is, seems very inspired by uh, Eric von Daniken. However, I'm looking it up not right now and I see that that actually was published between 1966 and 1967. as a, Well, it was serialized, so it was published bit by bit. Which means it was published before Eric von Daniken. So maybe it is the other way around. <laughs> oh. It could also be that the idea itself isn't, uh, is like a bit universal and. Maybe it wasn't yeah. such an original idea to yeah. von Daniken as we think it is. I'm, I'm not sure. Do you know when the Clark Three Laws, as it's being uh, circulating? Oh, when they first appeared? I think that was earlier than this. I think it was uh, the the first law was definitely in in the in the beginning at the beginning of the sixties. Must be, I'm yes. Pretty sure about that. So right. the third law says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure <laughs> whether Deniken could use that idea as well for his works, but it's not entirely unlikely. I think. I think time travel is the only explanation for all of this. Yeah. To be honest, I've never been able to completely read a Denikan book. I think all of his books have been translated into Hungarian. But I found it just too much. And at the time when I was really... Uh, open to these kinds of ideas I didn't get my hands on the book mind you that before the 1990s before the political changes of the 1990s it was not really allowed to bring in books like that so all the UFO stuff all this alternative history kind of stuff (laughs) enter the country after the political changes so after the fall of the the Iron Curtain and um this is how I think I, I never got fascinated with it. But I, I knew about his ideas, mostly as a skeptic. But I remember the first time that I saw Stargate. I really loved that series. Mm. And that was as if it, it, were, it was completely based on Denikin's works. <laughs> right, yeah. But it was still great because it was science fiction. But Denikin writes about stuff as if it was the truth. Yes. He doesn't, it, doesn't write science fiction books. No, right. He is like the, well, maybe he's, that's too mean, but he's almost like the David Icke of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But his books did have a lot of influence on society and on culture yeah. and, and yeah. science fiction and, and also yeah. some people who believe it. But a lot of people have heard about this. He, he was very successful in that respect. Yeah. And, and uh, how old is he now? He's born 1935. 1935. But he's still alive, is he? He's still alive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Annika. Thank you. That was fascinating. And uh, moving on 
to finding out if Pontus has something to poke the Pope for this week. I think actually I will give him a rest this week as well because there hasn't been too much of a scandal or he hasn't done something outrageous that I could criticize him for. It's been pretty quiet. I wonder if his health is not Uh, quite... As, as it should be, or maybe he's just has behaved. Maybe he's been listening to the show and he doesn't want to be here anymore, so he he, <laughs> yeah. he behaves. He's coming around. Yeah, well, <laughs> we, we, I will continue to monitor his activities, and as <laughs> soon as he makes a false move, I will I will come back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so uh, that means that we're moving on to talking a little bit about COVID nineteen. And since before the last episode, we were just waiting for the EMA to to publish their expert opinion. I mean, the EMA's, the European Medicines Agency's Pharmacovigilance Risk Assessment Committee. And it has actually happened since. So what about AstraZeneca? What about AstraZeneca? (laughs) Now, a link has been found between the AstraZeneca vaccine and an elevated risk of something that is called the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. That's quite a serious uh, blood clotting condition. It, it happens in the cerebral veins, which is quite serious when it happens. It's very rare. It's extremely rare. So we're talking about one in a hundred thousand. That is how likely it is to happen. And apparently, in fact, only people under the age of 55. So Pontus, you're okay. <laughs> Thanks. And especially women. So again. <laughs> I'm okay again, yes. <laughs> you're okay to take it. Um, but I, I don't want to make a joke out of it. This is serious stuff. But um, the Pharmacovigilance Assessment Committee, or PRAC, came out with this assessment after having examined all the internationally known cases. And they concluded that the risk is about one in a hundred thousand to be affected by this. That doesn't necessarily mean this is the risk of you dying of blood clotting, but developing it. And this is what the EMA tries to emphasize, that the risk that not vaccinating poses to your health and the outcome is far greater than that of developing uh, blood clots after receiving the jab. So they try to encourage people to take it. Some countries are taking uh, preventative measures in terms of they are developing new practices, like uh, not vaccinating people under the age of 65 or 60 or 55. Some countries uh, are planning to skip vaccinating young females with them, but they still will administer Uh, the vaccine to male citizens so there are different kinds of uh, of attitudes towards this vaccine as of now and unfortunately there are countries where it has been completely banned but the problem is that it's not the only vaccine where this problem emerged apparently there is another one which has not been uh, rolled out as of yet in europe but the European Medicines Agency is investigating the situation, and that is the Janssen vaccine, which is famous for uh, needing only one jab of the vaccine for gaining the the proper level of uh, protection against uh, falling ill. But it has been in circulation in the United States where a couple of uh, blood clotting cases very similar to those that we've seen with AstraZeneca have happened. They are currently under investigation, but the US authorities are recommending not 
using the vaccine as of now. So the EMA is obviously investigating the situation because some countries have already purchased batches of the Janssen vaccine and that means that they are about to roll them out. So that raises the question of whether it was something to do with AstraZeneca specifically or it's the immune response itself that uh, triggers something in people with specific conditions that we have previously not known about. Yeah. And that is what is currently being investigated because obviously, and this is how science works. So, I mean, I want to emphasize that the number of cases that triggered these investigations is so low that it's absolutely mind-blowing that it was even picked up. And this is how science should work. And uh, that brings me to another thing, the efficacy of the Chinese vaccines, the Sinovac and the Sinopharm vaccines, that apparently it was the head of the Chinese Center for Disease Prevention and Control that uh, came out with uh, a statement that said that uh, they are now recommending changing the timing between the two doses or even combining the vaccine with a different vaccine. And that is basically the first time that the country's leading experts have admitted that there might be something off with their vaccine. And, uh, well, for me, as being a Hungarian, that is specifically interesting because that is the vaccine that has been purchased in the largest batches <laughs> in Hungary. And it's it's being administered to people. But, but it, again, he, he did say... It is remarkable, and I wonder if he will be allowed to keep his job after this, but he didn't say it, it's not dangerous. No, it's not. It's still safe. It's yes. just that maybe the efficacy isn't as high as we would like it to be. Yeah, previously, the, well, getting back to what, we, what I said about science and how science should do its job when it comes to assessing the effectiveness of a vaccine. And uh, yeah, as you you may remember, AstraZeneca was criticized really ferociously for uh, not giving out the right numbers occasionally. Uh, so the Sinovac vaccine seems to have an efficacy rate based on their reports, the, the, government's, the Chinese government's reports, between 50 and 60% after the two shots. Whereas Previously, Sinopharm claimed to have an about 79% efficacy. Hmm. But now no one knows what to expect. What we already know, because the phase three trials of the Chinese vaccines have still not been as properly assessed and criticized and run through the scientific system of the world. So they have not been published yet, which is a weird attitude and a weird way of going about this. But this is why there is wide-scale distrust in the Chinese vaccine. But since it has been administered to millions and millions of people all over Asia, mostly Asia, we can now say that it's safe and it will most likely keep you from falling seriously and severely ill and probably hospitalized. But falling ill in the first place is probably not prevented at that high levels. No. But we should say also that 50% is not unheard of when it comes to vaccines. It's not, yeah. It's just... A, it's a, it's a, like like it's quite common for, for like a, a, f a flu vaccine. Right. It's very common yes. to expect only that level of efficiency. Mm. But there is another one, 
the Sputnik vaccine, which is uh, quite interesting. And uh, we got an article as well, a recommendation that was uh, run by El Pais. And they uh, raise a very interesting question about the Sputnik vaccine, which is a, the, the Russian developed uh, vaccine, that uh, more people have been vaccinated with that jab outside of Russia <laughs> than in the country itself. Because the take-up of the vaccine in Russia has been about 4%, less than 4% so far. Whereas in some countries, they've been using that to vaccinate large chunks of the population. And it raises a political question as well, how Putin probably wants to use this as an opportunity to gain more influence, politically speaking, and put pressure on some countries. But the other question that has been raised, and uh, there was a BMJ uh, article, the British Medical Journal uh, article, that was um, correspondence article, uh, raised a couple of interesting questions about the published data as well. So we know that in February there was a Lancet article that said the Sputnik vaccine is most likely safe and effective, but the numbers, and that, that is the, the issue that has been raised, that the numbers look too good to be true in a way that they look like they could have been manipulated in a way. No. And that would not be unheard of when <laughs> it comes to a country like Russia, uh, right? So this is why it's important for science to be absolutely transparent. And when it comes to things that people distrust, then th this level of transparency is even more important. And that's how we should probably push for more published data on both vaccines. All right, enough of vaccines. Moving on to the news. Yes, and we continue with COVID. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. Because in Germany, a popular marionette theater called Augsburger Puppenkiste uh, <laughs> was under fire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they got. Uh, do you want me to explain why they called that way? <laughs> yes, please. Because there was a bit of a giggle there. <laughs> okay, so they're from Augsburg. That's why they're called Augsburger. Mm hmm. And ah, okay. Puppenkiste means the dolls in a box or like the doll box because they had little, they started their theater pretty much with dolls that were in a box after the war. <laughs> mm. And that's what they called Augsburg Puppenkiste. <laughs> okay. okay, they're very popular in Germany. <laughs> and I, for example, also grew up with their um, plays and their videos. And um, they made a very cute video explaining testing for younger students in Bavaria uh -huh. and um, it's yeah it's very cute very great for children and yeah COVID denies overran the video downvoted it and commented that this would betray the ch children's trust and and uh, stuff like that luckily German public already could they turn around a bit um, because they have over tw um, 12,000 likes now so it, it just turned around from a shitstorm into a love storm so to say but it was really interesting to see that something that the Bavarian state pretty much told the marionettes theater to do could also get targeted that much because it was pretty innocent thing, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, still COVID, but uh, good news, at least. <laughs> <laughs> From Sweden. What? Sweden? Sweden, yeah. You know that country up north. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I've read about it, yes. But apparently 
there is uh, quite a high level of willingness to take the vaccine in that country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was published by the Swedish Public Health Agency. And, and apparently, from time to time, on a monthly basis, they ask residents of the country about their attitude to vaccination. And, uh, well, now it has developed into a habit <laughs> since COVID-19 was, has been going on for a while. So um, they, they ask people about uh, vaccination uh, and, and what their attitudes are towards it. And the, the latest uh, survey, which was uh, done between the 11th and the 22nd of March, uh, mind you, that was before the the whole AstraZeneca thing, AstraZeneca hubbub. Yeah, so the respondents were quite numerous. I mean, the survey uh, was sent out to three thousand and five hundred people, and there was an eighty nine percent response rate. So that's quite active citizenship right there that, that's impressive actually i didn't know that it is impressive yeah so 69 percent of the respondents said that they will definitely say yes to vaccination once it becomes available and 22 percent said that uh, they will probably say yes so overall that's more than 90 percent it's 91 percent that's quite high that's nine out of ten people basically saying not no to this question yeah but that's quite a change if you look at i think it was october or so it was in the 30s yeah where 30 percent something like that yeah, yeah, yeah of course times were different because then you hadn't had all the clinical trials and there was it wasn't tested enough so people were still suspicious but now i think everybody here are on board with it yeah yeah well we'll we'll see what the next month is uh, report will say but it's still impressive and uh, i have to say that uh, 5% saying no i mean that's not that high i mean that's not high at all that's a lot lower than what you would expect yeah the problem in sweden now is that we don't have enough vaccines mm. people are frustrated because they don't cannot get yeah. the shot because there's not enough doses around yeah you should go for the sputnik v and uh, the xenopharm as well yeah yeah <laughs> i can recommend it those are not approved in sweden so i can't <laughs> even if i wanted to but the other interesting thing about this is that among the questions there is one that refers to their motivation to give the answer they gave and uh it looks like the strongest driving force to do this was to protect others. Wow. Yeah. And only in the uh, the, the groups of, of the elderly is the motivation most likely that of their own health, which is completely understandable. I mean, mm-hmm. they have to think of themselves because they are in the risk group. So... But it's nice to see that general citizens in Sweden are willing to do this because of others. Yeah. It's almost like the Swedish skeptics did a very good job in informing the public. Of, <laughs> well done. Well done. Good job. Good job. <laughs> I'm prepared to take credit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got news that are grim and dire, but not connected to COVID, or maybe a bit. Okay. Because... We are fucked. Did you know that? <laughs> Oops. Because the carbon dioxide level um, are at an all-time high despite the lockdown or despite lockdowns even. Do you still remember a year ago when everybody was pretty much romanticizing the lockdown and said like, oh, look at the blah, blah, blah. This, they're they're um, getting so much better because of the lockdown and everything. The air is so clear, blah, blah, blah. 
Oh, yeah. But the problem is that the global emissions of greenhouse gases are still increasing. And without the lockdown, 2020 would have been highest on record. Mm -hmm. According to initial measurements from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the global levels of CO2 emissions are higher than at any time in the past 3.6 million years. How do they know? No, come on. How do they know that? <laughs> Were you there? Were you there? Well, Ice. Yeah. <laughs> ice. Yes. That's correct. I just That's say correct. ice. <laughs> ice cores. Ice cores. <laughs> exactly. And methane experienced the largest uh, year on year increase since the record started in 1983. So we can see it's, it's pretty, as I said, it's a pretty grim outlook. And um, without the economic slowdown, 2020 would have been the highest on record, but pretty much we'll, we'll probably be this year then. And the problem is we need to reduce fossil fuels, the emissions of that to near zero. But we also have to remove the greenhouse gases that are already here, that are already in the atmosphere. It's not enough to, like, even if we would stop right now, we would still need to, um, like, it's, it's not enough to stop the train, so to say. We have to put it in reverse. So this requires a collective reform of the whole global economy. And the problem here is collective and global <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. and economy, maybe. So let's have fun while we still can, right? <laughs> <laughs> I read recently about a, a small part of this issue being discussed in uh, the French parliament, that they are preparing to ban uh, domestic flights. I think they did ban it no 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 i think it ha hasn't passed the senate yet so they they did vote on it and uh they are preparing to ban it but um the original idea was that those flights that can be replaced with a shorter than four hour train ride instead will be banned so those flights are too short to do that and now it was lowered to 2.5 hours Mm -hmm. Which still means that with the TGV in operation, it's still quite a fucking large distance that can be <laughs> covered with uh, fast speed trains. But uh, I see that as a pretty good example of how difficult it is to get through even a small change. So Parliament had been discussing this like crazy and people left and right have been criticizing this idea overall. Not to talk about uh, Air France, of course, that, that, that doesn't really like the idea. <laughs> And this is how difficult it is. So it's almost like it's impossible to get things done that will help reduce carbon emissions. Even though there are like 70 times the level, the, the, the amount of CO2 emitted when you're flying that distance instead of sitting on a train. That is just crazy. And this is what I've been banging on about for a long, long, long time, that throughout Europe, all across Europe, we should develop fast speed trains yeah. and uh, magnetic trains or, or the, the maglavs mm -hmm. yeah. instead of investing more into flying. Because that's just... I can, I can tell you why, for example, um, we met at QED in 18, uh, 2018, right? Mm. And my reason for flying there was... A, that it took longer to take the train and I wouldn't have been there on time because I had to couldn't leave school earlier. And it was cheaper. And B, it's it's much cheaper, yeah. If if much cheaper, yeah. As a student I was like I wasn't no, I wasn't a student back then, but I was a teacher trainee. 
And then it's just like, uh, if you have the choice between eight euro there and back <laughs> or 150 euro. <laughs> exactly. Then it's, yeah, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> exactly. Mm. I once uh, missed a flight uh, from Manchester to Southampton <laughs> uh, in the UK. <laughs> and uh, since I missed a flight, but I had an appointment to make, I had to get on a train, which was fucking expensive. But it was like a four-hour train ride. It it wasn't that bad. And it was very, very fast. And it was very convenient. And I didn't have to go through security and all that. Yeah. Mm. If, if the price is the same, I, I usually decide for train. Yeah. Uh, because I find it much more, like, it's it's much comfier to, to sit there. And, it is indeed. And, and not don't have yeah. their security and everything. But yeah, like price is a decisive factor for a lot of people, it is. including it is, it including is. us probably. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Oh, the times we we could travel. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> like, why are we talking about it anyway? So yeah, exactly. Could it's just an <laughs> academic question at this point. <laughs> yeah, just develop the internet network. Right. Um, <laughs> okay, back to vaccinations mm -hmm. uh, again. Not necessarily just COVID, but vaccinations in general. Some people think that it is a human right not to take best care of their children. By Czech law, children must be vaccinated against nine diseases, including the diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, hepatitis B and measles. And a group of Czech parents have challenged the Czech health policy regarding mandatory vaccinations after they have been fined for refusing to immunize their kids. They uh, took it all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights, the ECHR, in Strasbourg. Just to mess with you, Annika. It's, it's pronounced Strasbourg. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> But it's French, so you can't pronounce it like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Strasbourg. Strasbourg. <laughs> Anyway, whatever it's called. <laughs> Strasbourg or something like that, like, like, like yeah. in Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the 8th of April, uh, the ECHR ruled that compulsory vaccinations are not just legal under the European Convention of Human Rights, but also, quote, the measures could be regarded as being necessary in a democratic society. End quote. Good. And the court judgment went on to say, quote, the objective has to be that every child is protected against serious diseases through vaccination or by virtue of herd immunity. End quote. So that's telling them you have to vaccinate your kids. It's not well, it's not mandatory in all of Europe, and it's up still up to each individual countries to decide on those issues, but it's not violating any human rights if a country should impose compulsory vaccinations. So this is an important ruling because it says this was about children and, and uh, child diseases like measles and other things. But this ruling sets an important precedent for the future and it can most likely be applied also to COVID-19 vaccinations, even if no European country yet has put such rules in place for, for this pandemic. Yeah, no one dared to do that. Well, I don't think they have enough vaccines to live up to it. So they it's a sort of, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Yeah. And I don't know if any country plans to do it, uh, but we'll, I guess we'll see. I think, I think uh, in the current situation, it's uh, politically speaking a suicide. 
maybe not in Sweden where everybody's so yeah yeah positive to it. But and then good point. But if everybody <laughs> are so positive, then you don't need to make it compulsory yeah. because they'll get vaccinated anyway. That's right. Yeah, and of course, regardless, this. I haven't read the whole uh, ruling uh, by the court, but I'm sure there are appropriate exceptions for people who for some reason cannot get vaccinated because of medical conditions and other. We're not forcing vaccination on individuals who are compromised in any way, who cannot receive them that that's not ethical <laughs> yeah <laughs> never mind it's gonna kill you but it's but compulsory it's legal it's yeah, legal yeah. it's legal yeah now to uh something completely different to bring the mood down uh yet a bit more that's apparently my job today mm-hmm. the pandemic led to the increase in online hate against jews hmm. because if anything bad happens especially in europe we know who to blame right exactly Jesus. We've known this for more than 2,000 years. I won't. As a German, I can't (laughs) joke about that. (laughs) No, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So the conspiracy theories um, blaming Jews for the pandemic's medical and economic devastation are on the rise. And Mm. it is feared that this will also lead to a rise in anti-Semitism in um, the post-pandemic time. Mm -hmm. And the lockdown kept the physical violence from happening. It dropped from 456 to uh, 371. But it pretty much only shifted to online violence. And as Moshe Kantor, the president of the European Jewish Congress, says, anti-Jewish hate online never stays online. So that's a problem there. And well, just to give you an overview, what, what people are saying is they're saying that Jews created and spread the virus so that they could sell a very expensive vaccine and make more money. Right. This must be Chinese Jews then working in Wuhan. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ, people are crazy. And being paid by Bill Gates. And Soros. Yeah. Of course. And Soros. And yeah. Soros, who's a Jew himself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, of course, yes. And, and you can see that it's like so anti semitic in in several layers um, because it also echoes the ancient anti-semitism of spreading a disease and wanting to make money yeah so how about eating children isn't that woven into this somehow usually i think yeah that's the clintons yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah but uh, here it's also what what you can also see is that the covet um deniers or the covet yeah people that are just angry about this they draw false comparisons between the health restrictions and the vaccines and the Holocaust. So this is another um, uh-huh. part of or another side of that. And people have been blaming uh, the Rothschild family or um, George Soros, as we already mentioned. Uh-huh. As I said before, the physical injuries decreased, for example, by 37% from 19 to 20. But the hateful sentiments still exist and yeah, even go up or went up. Something they just pretty much discovered is Zoom bombing, which meant that they will uh, would enter Zoom calls, uh, closed Zoom calls, when posted um, swastikas or hateful messages. So it's here's you can just really see that conspiracy theories are never harmless and are often very hateful. And surprisingly, many of them go back to anti-Semitism. So yeah, let's keep an eye on that. Yeah, and what worries me about not not only this, but uh, about the developments of the last year or so is how hatred that's being expressed online can be boosted by the fact that 
it's online. Yes. And online, it's much easier to express hatred. Like a snowball effect. Exactly. Yeah. Express hatred towards others. And we've been so polarized over every single issue. And vaccination and uh, COVID measures are just a number of them. Not not even all of them. Mm. And uh, that worries me quite a bit. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing down the mood. Yeah, hmm. you're welcome. For the, for the end of the news segment, uh, which this one signals. And that means that we need to find out as soon as possible <laughs> who's been really wrong lately. Double-blinded RCTs, or randomized controlled trials. We all know what that is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you take a new treatment, something that you think will work, and you want to test it, whatever it is, and you divide a number of patients, uh, with their consent, of course, into two test groups uh, at random, and you give the new treatment to one group, and a placebo or fake treatment to the others, and then you make sure that all involved, including the researchers, do not know which group gets what uh, until you have analyzed the results. And then you see if the treatment worked better than doing nothing. So pretty simple, sometimes hard to do, but a pretty simple principle. And um, researchers try to follow that as much as possible, except some of them who have no idea why and how it should be done. Some of those are homeopaths uh, working as a senior uh, lecturer in clinical trials, just like Claire Relton at uh, Queen Mary University of London. Her job is to lecture on how to do research to other homeopaths. Uh, Only she thinks that withholding Uh, quote-unquote real homeopathy from the placebo group is unethical. So why shouldn't they also get the fantastic homeopathic treatment too? That's not fair. If it only wasn't for that pesky unethical scientific protocol that she has to follow, she wants none of that. So she's found a good way around that and she is teaching that way to her homeopaths. Any speculation as to how you do this or she wants you to do this as a homeopath? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do want to know, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and this is for trials that go on for a while with many treatments per patient. That's, that's uh, critical here. But what you do is you keep a look at the patients that have not improved after, say, say half the study. And if they haven't improved, that means that they must have been given the placebo. Because otherwise they would have become better. So they, in her opinion, have been tricked and deprived of their right to a good treatment. So then you know what to do and you can fix the problem. You just slip them a little bit of the real stuff on the side. And um, how does she know then that this works? Well, in her trials, when she does that, the result, the improvement in both groups are the same. Which proves that... Uh, it works. Great. Yeah, that's Easy as that. Good Easy as that. <laughs> it doesn't occur to her that both of them are placebo because homeopathy doesn't contain anything <laughs> and giving nothing to two different groups will give the same uh, results. Surprise! <laughs> uh, and, and, and she totally misses the whole point of doing a randomized controlled trial. The thing is you want to test if 
one group improves more than another and then you can start to analyze that and, or suspect that the new treatment might work but uh, she thinks she thinks that unethical everybody should get the same good homeopathy all the time and mm-hmm. there is a video and it's still online as we record this on one of her le- lectures that we will link to and and if you just fast forward to around 7 minutes in you will find you can listen to how she explains just that and we will put the the link in the show notes and she's so bloody smug about it too she really <laughs> <laughs> she really knows that she is the most ethical person ever for having found out how to beat that terrible scientific protocol and she's teaching this to other researchers and then you know sometimes we wonder why the quality of homeopathic studies are so low maybe because they all try to cheat as much as they can mm-hmm. yeah and they, they have been taught how to yeah. uh, yes and they've been taught <laughs> it's, it's systematic now oh my god I'm, I'm i can't believe how stupid it is now of course she is under investigation for her conduct and uh, i hope and think that there will be some repercussions and i just still like the words for how stupid this is mm. <laughs> it's probably up there among the most stupid really wrongs we have ever awarded so which is saying something <laughs> that's something she's in, in that's that's an achievement really <laughs> so to homeopath and numbskull claire relton at queen mary university of london uh, we will give the prize for being the stupidest really wrong recipient ever <laughs> wow <laughs> that's a distinction yes no, that's yeah ever hall of fame it's not just a regular really wrong like even in three thousand years she'll still have that uh, <laughs> price. deliberately sabotaging uh randomized controlled trials because it's not fair to the placebo group that they don't get the proper medicine which is homeopathic <laughs> which which is not uh, the proper medicine in the first place which yeah. doesn't <laughs> So it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't contain anything. And uh, she is so happy about herself. <laughs> yeah. Well. Mm. Uh. <laughs> All right. It's like a giant face palm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Thank you very much, Pontus. And this brings us to the end of the show, which uh, can also be marked with a quote. <laughs> This week, the quote is from someone who would celebrate his birthday on the day of this recording, which is the 13th of April. But unfortunately, uh, since 2011, so for 10 years now, he has not been with us. And that is Christopher Hitchens, who's an, who was an English author, essayist, columnist, a, a critic, Everything <laughs> that can be told about someone who thinks and who's a, a, a highly trained intellectual. And a very short one that is a quite often used quote from him. What can be asserted without evidence can also be dismissed without evidence. Here, here. Short and sweet. <laughs> yes. Very clear. <laughs> Let's just put it together with uh, what we heard previously about... <laughs> homeopathy (laughs) but that really brings us to the end of the show so thank you very much Annika and Pontus for joining me today thank you thanks a lot many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in please keep doing so and until next week goodbye tschüss hello mislat
This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe